Well, here's how I feel. Can anybody read that? How about how about that? How about that? There you go. Well, no, it's Hebrew and Latin, Steve. No, it's uh, be warned, my son, of making many books. There is no end, and much study wearies the body. And that that is my verse of go-to verse these days. It is. Terry's like, how do you do that? I was up at six o'clock, either yesterday or, or Monday. I was up at six o'clock and I did not go out of the house except to go get my son a cup of coffee until 10 o'clock last night or the night. That, it was either yesterday or the day before. And all I did was research. And it, it, can you imagine? I have the internet. Can you imagine these guys who had to go to the library, pull down the book and, you know, but anyway, uh, yeah, it's, it is not an easy task, but it's exhilarating, exhilarating if you're into it. My wife thinks I'm a complete nerd, but I find it extremely exhilarating. Um, so we're, we're starting, let me say this administrative announcement. I, was, I had it on my to-do list that I am not going to be available to teach class on June 5th, uh, which is a Wednesday night, because my oldest is getting married on the 7th, and Wednesday night the 5th is his rehearsal and rehearsal dinner, and I'm in charge, and it's in Longmont, and the rehearsal dinner is at 6 o'clock, so I don't think that's going to work. So I have it on my to-do list to find someone to fill in, but as it turns out, church-wide, we're not going to be having class that night. Uh, the I wanted to say the hard travelers. Love it. Yeah, best friends from Love of Christian University. See, in my day, it was the hard travelers from Love at Christian College. That's the reason I wound up at Love at Christian because my best friend and roommate uh, tried out for the hard travelers and made it. I was going to Harding, uh, but wound up going to Lubbock instead. Anyway, they will be here. And so we will not have class. I assume you'll start seeing that in the uh, bulletin. But that will be a, a treat for you. I wish I could be here. Um, okay, so as I said in the email uh, this week, we have completed part one of the book. The book, the, par, uh, the, the overarching idea is the lens gets smudged. We're going to begin part two tonight, uh, getting a new lens or cleaning the lens. I don't know what I'm going to call it. I'm sure the editor, if the thing ever gets to pass the publishing screening committee. Um, but I want to show you, what I've tried to show you is that the lens got smudged through a series of basic uh, decisions that were made about sin and what sin was and what sin did and how you remove sin and so the 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 whole conversation got skewed what i'm trying to do in the book is show when god declares a sinner righteous and how god declares a sinner righteous and the whole thing got skewed and as I said in the email that you'll find on your computer when you get home, 
because of the way it got skewed, the... Um, you got to get more chairs. All right. It's too, Thank you, Don. This thing's too big. The two questions got conflated into one. The when became the answer to the how. When, according to the Protestant Reformation, a sinner is made righteous is when the sinner develops faith in Christ. And that became the answer to the how part of the question. How does God declare a sinner righteous? Well, it's based on the sinner's faith in Christ. And that's not what the New Testament says. And that's what I'm going to be showing you in the next three weeks. Okay, so, so the New Testament. When is a sinner made or declared righteous by God? New Testament and the early church for the first 400 years. It's a process. There's a proclamation of God's message. There's a hearing and comprehending on the part of the listener. There's a belief that develops, not just a mental assent, but a trust. A trust that leads that person to turn from this old interpretation. The example I keep using, oh, Jesus, he's a Roman criminal. He's being crucified for his crimes against the Roman government. God's message is no. He is a perfect human being who did not deserve to die and yet chose to die on behalf of every person who will ever live. He is a atoning sacrifice for human sin. Well, that's a completely different uh, take on the story, isn't it? So when that story is presented, it causes, it, it requires God anticipates a response in the hearer. And that here is belief, trust, that causes a turning, a confession, an agreeing with God. You're right. This is the reality that I now want to embrace. Jesus is Lord. I am a sinner. All of this goes into the process. The baptism is a final enactment, reenactment of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Why? I don't know. God is the one who's revealing this, not me. But it's a death, burial, and resurrection of the old man and a resurrection of new life of the new man. And then, of course, faithful unto death, uh, you know, Revelation uh, 2.10. So that was the basic message for the first at least 400 years. Now, in the next 1,100 years, we have the church. Well, first we have the general population going into the Dark Ages. The average person could not read, certainly could not write, had no access to uh, written material. The printing press wasn't invented until the 1400s. And so they were completely at the mercy of those who were educated to tell them what the Bible said. And it, it came to a point where even the people who were educated, the so-called theologians, weren't really relying on the Bible at all. Very, very high level of illiteracy when it came to the sacred text. The Greek manuscripts were not available and the, the clergy didn't know Greek anyway. They all knew Latin. They were studying philosophy. They were more than they were studying theology, and certainly more than they were studying the text of the sacred text. Uh, so what we got was baptism is for infants. That became the practice. And so 
the, the idea of sin, not it, it moved away from I choose to commit acts that are in disobedience to God to a, a state of existence. We are corrupt by nature. Adam's sin brought the sinful nature into all of that, blah, 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 blah. And as that evolved, they came up with this idea that baptism then removes original sin. Now, it, it may have dealt with prior sins. There's not a lot of information on this. Why? Because most of the people being baptized had no prior sins. They were infants. And so there's really no discussion of what prior sins. You were baptized as an infant, and it, it removed your connection to original sin, and it turned you toward God. As you grew up, all of your post-baptismal sin had to be dealt with through this, this uh, system called penance. If you didn't work it all off in this life, you worked it off in purgatory. And that purification, as we saw at the very end of, of part one, that purification, that time in purgatory, can be shortened by indulgences. Crazy, isn't it? I mean, it's just a wild system, but logically it makes sense as it evolved. So by the, by the turn of the, the 16th century, from the 1400s to the 1500s, what was going on? You go to the priest, you confess, he tells you, oh, you know, I absolve you, I forgive you with God. If you stole a neighbor's piece of property, go give it back. You know, I'll reinstate you with the church. So those are the first three categories of sin. But the fourth is the damage that sin did to you. You have to be transformed spiritually. They actually called it a conversion. They still call it a a sinning Christian must be converted. And you do that through acts of penance. Say prayers, go on pilgrimages, come to mass, you know, whatever. We might call those the spiritual disciplines, right? Well, by this time it was so corrupt, they said, hey, if you don't want to do all that, just make a $100 donation to rebuild the basilica in Rome and you'll get the same effect. And from Martin Luther's viewpoint, that's basically selling indulgences, right? And when he posted his 95 theses on the wall of the church in, in uh, Witten, Wittenberg, right? Yeah. Wittenberg. Wittenberg, yeah. Yeah, the W in German is pronounced with a V. Wittenberg, like Wagner. You know, he, Martin Luther is trying to start a discussion, right? He is a... He is a legitimate believer in Jesus Christ. He is a sincere human being. He's trying to start a discussion. Hey, let's talk about these things. He nails them up there, which was the standard way you got ideas in front of your colleagues so that you could all have a civil discussion. What did he wind up triggering? Yeah, the, the greatest social upheaval the world had ever known to that point. So out of that, yeah, the reformers say enough. And what they say in response is the Catholic Church, I think I got this on the next slide. Let me just check. <coughs> yeah, let me back up a little bit and lay the foundation first. So they're reacting to this idea. 
How does God remove sin? Well, he removes sin by you doing something. You have to say prayers. You have to do this. You have to do that. They said, no. A sinner is declared righteous by God when the <clears throat> sinner develops faith in Christ. Nothing more is required. Okay. Is that right? Well, at the time, it was very right. And that's really the only thing you could say in the face of such obscene uh, perversion of what God is saying. But he, my... He and James. You know. Yeah, exactly. He and James are cross-friends. Depends on how you Yeah. And, and what, did, what did Martin Luther do with James? I mean, he had to leave it in the Bible, right? What did he call it, Don? A right strawy epistle. A right strawy epistle. Straw, S-T-R-A-W. You know, when Paul, Paul talks in Corinthians about summer fire and summer wood and summer straw, and the straw is going to get burned up with fire in the judgment. He didn't think much of James. If he had his druthers, he would have kicked it out of the cannon. But he, he didn't have his druthers. But what I'm pointing out is this began a new trajectory that we have been on ever since. It, it started with Luther. It came through Zwingli in Switzerland, Calvin in, uh, where was Calvin from? Was he? Anyway, wherever he And then it has come into modern evangelicalism. Europe. Europe, yeah. So Luther's Germany, Zwingli, Switzerland, Calvin is wherever. And, and now we have it in modern <clears throat> evangelicalism. And it shows up all over our Bibles. And that's what I'm trying to point out to you. And the basic idea is that it is a sinner's faith alone that makes the sinner righteous. And the logical corollary of that is, well, then baptism is really an oddity, isn't it? And I showed you last time, this was not Luther's theology. Luther's idea of baptism, I could preach Luther's sermons on baptism all day, every day. But Zwingli, he's the one who took it. Because you think about it, it has a logical contradiction in the very statement. A sinner is saved, made righteous by faith alone. Nothing else is required. Therefore, baptism gets jettisoned. And that's exactly what happened. But what does the New Testament say? What does the New Testament say? Yeah, there's 16 of them, Jeff, that I found that directly link baptism. Now, there's 30 that say faith alone. If all we had was John and Paul's statement in Romans 10, then all you'd have to do is believe and confess Jesus, and you'd be, I mean, the, the Protestant Reformation would be right. Let's, let's go back to the basics. What did Jesus say? John the Baptist says, I'm not worthy to even, he said, this must be done. Must be done. He didn't say this could be done, this might be done. He said, this must be done. Exactly. 
Well, the problem I see is when you talk about faith alone, they just mean belief alone. Because yeah. faith includes obedience. So, I mean, I, I mean, we talked about that, I think, in one of the earlier classes. And I think that's where we get off the rails is that we define faith too narrowly. Yeah, and, and the reason I keep pushing back on that, Alan, is because I think it's more <laughs> profound than that. I think to, to really speak clearly and, and help people understand, we have to give them a <laughs> theology. And the, the, wrong, the, the wrong theology is... which this word is holiness. I think where the conversation got off track theologically is they equate a, every time that the New Testament says faith saves, the definition is that means a sinner's faith makes us righteous. The Bible doesn't say that. Nowhere does the Bible say that. And that's what I'm going to show you tonight, next week. Okay? So everybody clear where we're saying? Because this, what you're saying, you're trying to redefine faith, which is fine. What I'm trying to say is the theology that underlines, underlies <coughs> the argument is faulty. And it's resulted in a mistranslation of eight passages of Scripture. That if we translate them properly, we will get a clear view of what Paul is saying and where human faith, sinful human faith fits and where the faith of Christ fits. So that's where we're going. Okay, so grammar is not my favorite subject. I got a D in uh, junior math in high school. I took, uh, forgive me, I, I won't say it because I'm being recorded. <laughs> my, my senior year, I had to take remedial English. Let's put it that way. We called it something else in, back in the 70s, but I won't repeat it. I barely squeaked by. Now, something weird happened because I graduated uh, from high school uh, barely, barely passing. I, mean, I got, I think my GPA was on the borderline of not being uh, sufficient to pass. I left there. I was baptized in May. I graduated in June. In August, I moved to West Monroe, Louisiana and attended White Spray Road for one year. They had a little program first year that they had started it. They had their preaching school was going on, but they opened up a special studies for youth, they called it. And uh, it was designed for people right out of high school, before they go to college, who want to study the Bible. That's all it was, study the Bible. Completely unaccredited. And so I enrolled, and another guy from the church was going through the preaching school. So he and I moved back there. We roomed together, and I went through the youth school, we called it. And I think I've told you, I was in that class with um, Janice Howard, Alton Howard's daughter. Um, she married David Owen and her older sister Mary, married David's brother, Mac Owen. And so, and now Mac and Mary Owen were back in contact because Mac and Mary are the uh, national directors of Celebrate Recovery. So God has a funny way of going full <laughs> circle. But anyway, when I got done with that year, I got straight A's in that school. 
I came back home and started my first year college at the local junior college, and I enrolled in freshman English. And the first day of class, we had to take a test. There were about 100 of us in the class. We had to take a test, and one portion of the test was on English grammar. And if you scored over a certain score, you didn't have to come to class for the, the rest of that week and half the next week because you already knew English grammar. Well, guess what? Me and one other guy passed the test. <laughs> where did I learn that? I have no idea where I learned it. It must have been in my studies of Greek and all that stuff. But somehow I learned the rules of grammar. Now, I remember in high school, my least favorite topic was prepositions. Remember those? Diagramming them and finding the preposition and the prepositional phrase and all that stuff. Well, I've learned to appreciate prepositions. They are a word governing and usually preceding a noun or pronoun and expressing a relation to another word or element in the clause. So let me give you some examples. The man is on the platform. Where's the preposition? On. What's the prepositional phrase? On the platform. Easy peasy. She arrived after dinner. After is the preposition. After dinner is the phrase. The man is... In the living room. In is the preposition. So a preposition reveals the relationship between two things. The Bible. The Bible. The lectern. The Bible, the lectern. Two things. Okay, what's the relationship? The Bible is on the lectern. The Bible is under the lectern, the Bible is over the lectern. It shows a relationship between those two things. Okay, so here's the point. In Greek, Greek has prepositions. Every language has prepositions. There is no preposition in Greek for the English word of. <coughs> So, and this is hilarious. You know how we do it in English. Ustedes hablan español. Okay. We do it in English. You know, we say, Bob Pacos. Now, in español, dicen, Los tacos de Bob. D-E, that's the preposition for our English preposition of. It would say, los tacos de bob. There's your preposition right there. So I try to tell my Mexican friends, you know, no, the way we do it is we just put a little apostrophe there. And they don't use that in Spanish. And they have no idea how to do it. It's kind of like we do with their... Um, Reflexive, you know, se habla español. Well, what does that mean? Se habla español. The Spanish speaks itself here. It's a reflexive. It's what? I talk Spanish. I talk Mexican. That's what we say. I talk Mexican. So then you, you say, no, Bob, I'm, I'm trying to show a relationship. This takes, the, this takes the place of a preposition. It would be de. That's day. Oh, I get it. Bob's tacos. Yes, yes. 
No. But they do the same thing when I try to use the reflexive in their language, and we all laugh. We all laugh at each other. But here's the point. There is no preposition of in Greek. But it is quite common to express the idea in Greek. Without the preposition of, the Greek language uses a different methodology. Here's what they do. One or both of the nouns, which one is irrelevant, takes a different form. So you have what's called the genitive case. Let me give you some examples. The kingdom of God. That's how we say it in English. Well, what if there is no preposition of? So how do you show the relationship between the kingdom and God? Translators are certain when they come across this expression in Greek that it means the kingdom of God, not the kingdom in God, the kingdom of God, or the kingdom below God, the kingdom around God. How do they know that? How are the translators so certain that they universally translate it as the kingdom of God? Because here's what it looks like. Basileia, which is your word for kingdom, say, ooh, there's your change in form. That is the genitive case of the noun God. Basileia Theu from Basileia Theos. Theos is the noun for God. If you change the ending from an S to an O, then you get the kingdom of God. So let me show you some of the examples. Jesus said, but if it is by the Spirit of God... Now, again, there's no, there's no word there in the Greek. So how do they know it's the Spirit of God? Not the Spirit in God, or from God, or over God, or before God, or after God. How do they know? Because there is no preposition there. That is supplied in the translation. But they know for a fact that it's the, king, the Spirit of God. Because it's the pneumatai theu. Numatai Theu, the Spirit of God. This happens all over the New Testament. Kingdom of God, Spirit of God, righteousness of God, day of the Lord, love of God, law of Moses, servant of God, commandment of God, it happens, it's just so routine. It is the standard protocol of translating the language. Okay, questions? So what? We're getting there, Don. We're getting there. Here's the so what. The Greek New Testament this is the thesis of my book, recognizes a category of faith that does not appear 
in many of our modern English New Testaments. <clears throat> Beginning with Luther, moving through Zwingli, Calvin, and others, a conversation took place. Each side of the conversation was a reaction to the other's view. Now, here's what Newton found when he studied physics and motion, okay? For every action, there is an equal opposite reaction. Conclusion, two and only two alternatives are offered. Forces always come in pairs. The law of equal and opposite attraction, action, reaction, demands that the antagonists come in pairs. You've got one side saying one thing, you've got the other side saying the other thing, those are the only two options made available. Application to our discussion. How is a sinful human being made righteous before God? Medieval church, faith plus works, reaction, faith alone, a third possibility was completely overlooked to the point that now it is completely camouflaged by most of our English New Testaments. My thesis is what's driving that translation is not Paul's theology. It is the argument that was laid out in the Protestant Reformation that it is a sinner's faith alone that is the emphasis. There is another category of faith. The faith of Jesus Christ makes a sinful human being righteous before God. So I'm answering, how does God make a sinner righteous? By my faith? No way. I said in an email this week, my faith is as pitiful as my works. So the alternative did not solve the dilemma. How does God make it? By the faith of Jesus Christ is the consistent answer in the New Testament. When does God make that human righteous? When the human is moved into Christ by faith. That's where we're going. We're starting the conversation this week. We'll finish the conversation next week. And then the following week, I'm going to show you what Paul does say about a sinner's faith. What does a sinner's faith do for us? It does not make us righteous, not according to Paul. It moves us into Christ. And it's Christ that makes us righteous. That's the theology that I think better answers the question. Okay, so the faith of Christ in the New Testament. Here's an introduction. Here's the interesting thing. When Paul talks about, and I'm going to show you, and I'm going to give you every passage. Next week we're going to go through every passage, line by line, step by step. We're going to go through every passage where he says this. But what I want you to see is, in every passage where he uses his expression, Pistis Christu, the faith of Christ, 
he's talking about God's righteousness. God makes us righteous how? It's translated in English by our faith in Christ. That's not what Paul says. It's always by the faith of Christ. So here are your passages. You don't need to write them down because I'll send them to you. So there are seven passages, eight times Paul uses this expression. He uses it twice in Galatians 2.16. And I'm going to look at this one last because if you get this one, you, if you get Galatians 2.16, then it clicks. Then it clicks. But it clicks for me. <laughs> All right. Okay, here's the point. Any questions so far? I'm going to get a cup of coffee. We have 23 minutes. Yeah. Here's what I'm saying. Faith, Christ, two nouns, okay, I've translated them both into English. In Greek, and I'm using uh, English letters, from So here's the noun in its just standard lexical form. Pistis is faith. Christo, actually it's Christos. Christos is Christ. So here are two nouns, but you don't know what the relationship between those two nouns is. Okay? When Paul wrote his New Testament, in these instances, he changed this ending to this. Okay? Which, if you, if you follow the standard protocol of translating, that would be, we would say in English, up. But that's unacceptable. Why? Because the doctrine, the trajectory that was laid down in the late 1500s is, no, it's my faith in Christ. And so this is consistently after about 1700 in Christ. And the assumption is it's talking about a sinner's faith in Christ. And that's not what the text says. The text consistently says faith of Christ. Okay, does that help? Yeah. Okay. You've been too many in your Spanish. In my Spanish? <coughs> uh, la fe, ¿verdad? La, la fe, fe es, es femenino. La fe de Cristo. 
the faith of Christ, which is the way the Spanish translation has it. The old one does. The Reina Valera. Because it's based on the Latin. And the Latin has it. They. La fe de Cristo. La fe de Cristo. The faith of Christ. But it doesn't come into the English. In these instances. All right. Here's my point, and if you look at this, this has just been mind-boggling. But this thing, and it's not even done. This is my appendix A, uh, eight. It's I don't I don't have num numbering. I, if I remember right, this is 13 pages. Okay. I went back with the internet and I looked at every translation. Every translation. You start with the green, Greek manuscripts. We don't have access to them. But the earliest manuscripts in Greek, there is not one single place that Paul uses the expression faith in Christ. And again, not next week, but the following week, I'm going to show you if Paul wanted to say, and he does say, he does say repeatedly, Faith in Christ. Not only does he have a preposition, he has two prepositions in Greek. He can either say faith in Christ or faith into Christ. And he does both repeatedly. So if he wants to say a sinner's faith in Christ, he can say it. And does say it. So stay tuned. Not next week, but the following week. I'll show you that. But right now, what I'm showing you is, this, this is just a shorthand. This is 13 pages. So you start out with the Greek manuscripts. They, the Greek was quickly, uh, in the western part of the church, not a, a language that people used. What was the language that they used in Rome? Latin. Latin. So by the end of the second century, Everything's in Latin, and you have multitude of translations into Latin. Well, in the 300s, they've got this smattering of uh, Latin translations, and the Pope appoints Jerome, St. Jerome, to translate all of these Latin transcripts into one standardized translation. Now, the original assignment was just do the Gospels because that's really what we need. Jerome takes it one step further and does the rest of the New Testament and then starts working on the rest of the Bible um, and, and eventually starts translating the entire uh, Latin body of manuscripts into one standardized Latin version. That's the Latin Vulgate of 382. And that becomes the scriptures for over a thousand years. And when you read it and you translate it, every one of these is the faith of Christ. La fe de Jesucristo. All right, questions about that? Now, everybody knows or should know that the Roman Empire began to crumble about 400 
and it was invaded repeatedly. And other cultures and other languages began to take precedent over Latin. And so about 670 is when the roots of Anglo-Saxon language, which is the root of English, started to take hold. And so the question becomes, as the, as the Bible was being translated into the English, how did they translate it? Well, it starts out in 1384 with John Wycliffe, who hand wrote his translation. And I will give you in next week, or maybe this week, I'll put it up on the Google uh, Drive. I will give you a chart that I've made that compares all of these translations. Every single one of them say the faith of Christ. From 1384 to Tyndale's Bible, to the Coverdale Bible, to Matthew's Bible, to Taverner's Bible, to the Great Bible, to the Geneva Bible. The Geneva Bible, these were based on the Latin. The Geneva Bible, they went back to the Greek manuscripts for the first time. Guess what they came up with? This phrase, Pistis Christu, is the faith of Christ. It's not a sinner's faith in Christ. The Bishop's Bible, the Dewey Reims, the King James Version, and after the King James, um, let me just read some of these. So how I've broken this down is I've got the linguists tell us that the, the, pro, the evolution of the English language progressed in four stages. The middle, the early English, or the Anglo-Saxon, which was from 600 to 1150. Let me put these up here. And when you get home tonight, you'll have this in your, uh, my appendix, my appendix eight. So from 600 to 1150, and remember, this is not a written language at this point. This is all verbal language. That's the Anglo-Saxon period. I can't read that small without my glasses, so let me put it on. From 1150 to 1450, they call it the Middle English period. From 1450 to 1750 is the early modern English period. And then from 1750 to today is the present English period or the modern. Okay. So there's your breakdown. So starting in 670, uh, you've got some attempts at biblical translation. Uh, 735, you've got the Gospel of John being translated. Uh, you can read all this for yourself. Now, in 1066, things come screeching to a halt. What happened in 1066? The Battle of Hastings. 
Yeah, the, the Norman conquest, and Norman brought right. clergy that spoke French, and so for 150 years there was no English, there was no evolution in the English language. But that all changed in 1150 with the Middle English period. Um, you've got the Book of Psalms being translated, you've got harmonies of Gospels, um, and then in the modern English period, which is the one that where Wycliffe is Wycliffe is right at the end of this period. And then Tyndale is clearly in this period. But again, all of these translations are taking the Greek phrase pistis Christu and rendering it the faith of Christ. The great Bible, I've already told you about this. Paraphrase of the Romans in 1746. Uh, there was a Catholic scholar. Now, in the modern English period, beginning in 1750, here's what I found, okay? All of these translations, and there is a boatload of these translations. You can read, um, you know, starting about 1700, things just start to blow apart. And there's just, and what's amazing is they're all available online. Google it, look at it, pull it up, read what it says. So from 382, with the Latin Vulgate, to the year 1700, every single translation that I can find has rendered Pistis Christu in the Greek to the faith of Christ. Now, beginning in 1700, there's an obscure little guy. Oh, I can't remember these names. But you get one translation that has two of the eight. He takes the two that appear in Romans 3 and says, oh, that's a sinner's faith in Christ. But then the three that appear in Galatians, then one in Ephesians and one... So one instance. Now, 29 years later, so this is in 1700. In 1729, you get the first translation into English that universally uses the Protestant Reformation definition of faith. I have a question. Yes. What do you mean by non-interested translate? These people were not involved in the conversation of the Protestant Reformation. I mean, that much is obvious because Wycliffe was 150 years before it ever began. <coughs> Tyndale was not involved. I mean, it only happened. The conversation took, we're going to see in just a minute. I've got eight minutes. It took about 200 years to go to sea all the way up to the King James Version, which remember, let me, let me do this. But in every one of those situations, the faith of Jesus Christ makes a sinful being, a human being righteous before God. That is this, the clear teaching of the New Testament. Now we've got some more here that I'm going to come back to. Well, let me come back to these, okay? So let me show you this. See if this helps. Up to 1700, 
Greek, Latin, and every English translation says it is the faith of Jesus Christ that makes a sinner righteous. Now, between 1700 and 1800, I found eight translations out of the multitude that are starting to show signs that this idea is changing. From 1800 to 1900, I found a dozen translations that begin to move from away from this translation. Beginning in 1900, most English translations have completely made the change, including this bad boy right here. This is one of the most literal English translations that you can find. It's the American Standard Version. All right, I've got to hurry. But it's still, it was, it was published in 1901. But by then, the, the argument that when and how does God make a sinner righteous? God makes a sinner righteous when that sinner develops faith in Christ. And so all of these verses that we're talking about have been changed to reflect that ideology. So today, the Protestant Reformation definition of saving faith has carried the discussion. Any English translation made, the reader cannot detect the issue in the English. That's just where we are. And that's why I'm writing my book. So let me give you an, ex an illustration to close class. Here is an example from the NIV. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous. Remember, every time Paul uses this expression, pistis Christu, it is in the context of him dis discussing the righteousness of God. You will never be declared righteous in God's sight by works. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. So here's your righteousness. There is no, so how do they know that? Because this has been rendered, or God has been rendered, or both have been put into the genitive case. Everybody knows. We're not talking about the righteousness below God or above God, behind God, in front of God. We're talking about the righteousness of God. And here's the zinger. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. And there it is. The Protestant Reformation definition of saving faith. A sinner's faith in Jesus Christ. Here's the odd thing. To all who believe. I'm going to, I'm going to show you this in the, in the next class, next week. Because you render this expression as a sinner's faith in Christ, Paul becomes extremely repetitive. I call it the unnecessary redundancy argument. He's saying the same thing twice, but he's not really saying the same thing twice. But we translate it as if he is. Because, let me show you what this verse really says. Righteousness of God. See, there's righteousness there's theos, and how has it been changed? Theu. So they know it's the righteousness of God through the faith, 
that's been changed of who? Yesu Christu. The righteousness of God through the faith of Jesus Christ into all those believing ones. That's what the text says. God's righteousness is given to or a sinner is moved into the righteousness of God because of the faith of Jesus Christ. That's my argument. So look at the King James. Here's how the King James happened. Again, they're out in England. They're, you know, they've, they've broken away from the Catholic Church. They have, you know, they, they have no interest in this conversation. They just want to marry uh, Catherine, right? Divorce Anne Boleyn. And... All right. Therefore, the deeds of the law, there will be no flesh justified, declared righteous by God in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all them that believe. So now you have two categories of faith. That's my argument. Paul's theology, there are two categories of faith. The faith of Jesus Christ and the faith of a sinner. And when you get that, man, so much begins to click. Which is what I'm going to show you. Alright, so let's go. And I'm done with this, okay? I know this is a lot of information. So think about it. Text me if you have questions. But Robert Young, you know the Young's Analytical Concordance of the Bible? Brilliant man. Brilliant man. He rendered his own translation of the New Testament in... Let me give you the year. It's quite late, actually. Yeah, it was. I don't want to go back to it. Anyway, 1880-something. Okay, here's what he says in his preface. If a translation gives a present tense when the original gives a past, or a past when it has a present, or a perfect when a future, or a future for a perfect, an, I, an A for a B, or a, an, a, or a B for an A, or an imperative for a subjunctive, or a subjunctive for an imperative, a verb for a noun, or a noun for a verb, Here's his point. If all that is going on by the translation, it is clear that verbal inspiration is as much overlooked as if it had no existence. There's the date right there. I should have looked. Oh, that's what you were saying. Oh. All right. How do I realize the faith of Christ? I'll tell you that, Don. Stick with me. I could not agree more. Here's my quote from 2019. If a translation says that a sinner is made righteous by his or her faith in Christ, when the text clearly says that a sinner is made righteous by the faith of Christ, it is clear that verbal inspiration is as much to overlook as, is, as if it had no existence. That's where I'm going. This makes a difference, folks. It makes a difference. Theologically, if we get it, 
then everything else falls into place. Why am I baptized? Is it a work? Is it faith? I don't care what it is. It is part of the process that God has revealed to get you into Christ. And it's when you're in Christ that God makes you righteous. Not because of your faith, but because of what Christ accomplished. That's where we're going. That's my thesis. Which is the reason why the thief is saved. Right. How can a sinner feel confident before God? Roman Catholic Church said, you have removed your sin by your works of penance. Protestant Reformation says, you have removed your sin by your faith. Difference without a, disti a distinction, without a difference. To the extent that my position before God depends on me, to that precise extent, my position is insecure. My position before God does not depend on my works any more than it depends on my faith. And then you're made whiter than snow. Absolutely. Absolutely. And how do you know? What did Martin Luther say? Because I've been baptized. I'm in Christ. I know I'm in Christ. My, my faith may be weak. My faith may be strong. My uh, church attendance may be weak. My church's tenets may be strong. Guess what? It does not matter. I am in Christ. Next time, we're going to examine each instance in context. We're going to rethink how a sinner is made righteous. And with one of the pieces of the book, I'm going to try to show you that this is a coherent and comprehensive view of the definition of saving faith. Hence the title, Salvation, Rethinking Saving Faith in Christian Baptism. Thanks for your attention. Hey, I'm Eddie White, the Senior Minister for the Eastside Church of Christ. Sure want to thank you for joining us today on our podcast. I hope today's message was indeed a blessing to you. I'd like to invite you to browse our website at eastsidesprings.com to get more information or to contact us. And as always, we indeed welcome you to join us for our worship service in Colorado Springs every Sunday at 1040 a.m. as we seek to live out Jesus' mission of making disciples of all nations.